most physicians focus exclusively on the LDL cholesterol. We don't focus as much on the total cholesterol simply because that is also taking into account your HDL cholesterol. LDL cholesterol is one of the more atherogenic, meaning causing plaque buildup. And so that's why we tend to focus on that. You have more power over your health than what you've been told. This is the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions Podcast. I'm Maya Acosta, and I'm passionate about finding healthy lifestyle solutions to support optimal human health. If you're willing to go with me, together we can discover how simple lifestyle choices can help improve our quality of life and increase longevity in a big way. Let's get started. All right. Welcome back to another episode of the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Maya Acosta. Now, I'm wearing red because it's still the month of February, even though this recording might come out in March. And we are still talking about heart health. So we have a cardiologist on today as a guest, and she's going to talk to us about what we can do to optimize our health to prevent heart disease and other conditions related to our heart. Dr. Nicole Harkin is an MD, FACC. She's a preventive cardiologist, triple board certified in internal medicine, cardiology, and clinical lipidology. I had to say that slowly just to make sure I get it right. You which did means it. She, <laughs> awesome. Which means she is a cholesterol doctor, which is perfect for us right now. She specializes in cardiac optimization through precision and lifestyle medicine and is passionate about preventing heart disease through healthful, sustainable changes. Dr. Harkin's mission is to provide patient-centered cardiac care, evidence-based nutrition guidance, and personalized lifestyle plans for her patients in a convenient virtual setting. She takes pride in helping patients achieve their goal, feel better, and thrive. After graduating from Boston University School of Medicine, she attended Columbia University for internal medicine residency and New York University for Cardiology Fellowship. Upon completion of her cardiology fellowship, including serving as a chief fellow, she remained on NYU as an assistant attending. She proudly serves on the American Society of Preventing Cardiology Nutrition Working Group in the American College of Cardiology, California, Chapter for Prevention Committee. She's also a member of the National Lipid Association. Dr. Harkin has been featured in several popular media outlets, Upworthy, The Beat, Headline, HuffPost, and more. And when not doctoring, she spends the majority of her time with her three children. She also enjoys cooking, yoga, Peloton-ing. I love how you put that, and hiking as well as traveling. Welcome, Dr. Harkin. Thank you so much for having me on. It's such a pleasure. It's so meaningful for me that you are coming on because I know that you work on prevent prevention and we're going to talk about those lifestyle modifications, lifestyle um, habits that we can take on right now before we develop any kind of heart conditions. Um, there's so much to talk about and I sort of made a list because I didn't want to get off topic. I've often said that I, I talk a lot. Um, I'm hoping, Dr. Harkin, um, that we can talk about these various things, but I want to mention right now to our listeners that you're part of a series of the um, providers that are part of Planted Forward. And so that's the telehealth uh, practice that um, you all have just created. And so I started with Dr. Melissa Mandela. Last year, I interviewed Dr. Vanessa Mendez. And so we've had everyone on and you're part of that series so that people can understand more about how 
telehealth is used, um, and we'll learn about where you practice and about um, Planet Forward as well. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that before we move on to heart disease? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm very fortunate to be a part of an amazing group of women healthcare providers. Um, so we are physicians, registered dietitians, health coaches, um, and um, we're a collective um, really providing evidence-based whole person telemedicine services. Um, and so uh, we really work um, all together with our, our patients um, to really help them optimize their health. Um, and so um, whether it's, um, you know, nutritional guidance or um, doctoring or a combination of the above, um, we're just, we're so excited to be able to provide that to help people um, and, and really have that, that partnership. Um, and, you know, telemedicine has really just opened doors for so many people to be able to get um, access to different providers that maybe they didn't have, um, you know, more locally. Um, and so um, personally, I'm uh, licensed to see patients in California, New York, and Florida. Um, but then we have health coaches, um, registered dietitians, you can see patients um, in, in a much larger area. Um, and then it's just great because we all have very um, similar approaches um, in that it's a very holistic, whole person approach where we're just looking at everything. So, um, so if you were you see me or anyone else, you know, we talk a lot about obviously nutrition, um, but also other other things, exercise. Um, thorough family histories, you know, all of this stuff and really um, give people a lot of time um, to kind of form that relationship, understand that person, um, and then um, help guide them in a path that's going to help their um, their health. Mm -hmm. I love that you are all women. Um, because I feel that as women, we can understand each other a little bit more, especially when it comes to how we are impacted emotionally by things that happen around us, our levels of stress. And also, I guess we'll talk about how women experience symptoms related to heart disease. Um, you also have your own practice in, in San Francisco. Yeah, that's correct. So I moved from New York um, a little bit about a year and a half ago. Um, and at that point decided to, um, launch my own, um, practice, um, so that I could really just practice. Um, prevention has always been my passion and I just really wanted to double down on that and just really focus on that exclusively. Um, and then just really be able to practice medicine the, the way I wanted to practice it. Um, the traditional medical model is, as we know, very broken. Um, no one gets nearly enough time with their doctors as they would like. Um, and no one's happy with it. You know, physicians are miserable. Patients feel like they're not being heard. Um, and so, um, so sort of just took a leap of faith and stepped out of that system um, and have been able to just be really happy um, doing that. So I'm able to, you know, talk to my patients for an hour, um, really deep dive into everything that's going on. They can email me and I'll email them back with, you know, hey, I read the study or what do you think about this? Um, so it's really, I mean, even though it's, um, uh, I'm doing telemedicine, um, which is sort of modern medicine, um, it's kind of also feels old school medicine too, in a way, because it's, it's back to that doctor patient relationship, um, that really used to exist in medicine and is being lost a bit today. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I've said that as well. I'm not at all, you know, in medicine myself, but I, I, back in the day when people actually used the term, my doctor. That's really what it was. You had this personal relationship with your physician who probably came to your home 
many years ago. And you're right. It's sort of like coming back to that, that you have, you're, you're a lot more invested with your patients. You take a lot more time in, in individualizing treatment as well. Um, I also like that all of you in all the providers from Planted Forward all have had that experience with traditional forms of medicine. So you all come from that world, understanding that there's something, like you said, broken in the system, and you're deciding to um, practice differently the way that you see is best for um, for patients. So any chance that you'll ever practice, you know, have a license here in Texas? Yes, actually, Texas is on my list. So I am keeping track of all. So unfortunately, I am still bound, bound obviously, by the, the, the laws. Um, and as such, it, we are still, as physicians, only allowed to practice in the states we're licensed in. Um, and so, um, so as there, and unfortunately, it is a lengthy and sometimes expensive process to get licensed in other states. So, um, so I'm building slow. Um, and I've got been getting lots of requests. Actually, New Jersey, I get a lot of requests for. So I think that might be the next state I'm adding. Um, but Texas is obviously large and uh, a state. And so um, a lot of people to potentially help there as well. So that's definitely on my list as well. So please definitely email us at Planted Ford. We're keeping track. So as demand increases for certain states, um, then we we sort of really look into those. So all of us providers are, are interested in, in making sure we we help as many people as we can. Um, and so when we hear um, increased demand from certain states, that's what we'll start adding those on. So it's interesting that I live in Dallas, one of the larger cities here in, in Texas, and we people usually come to us because of our organization we started a few years ago called um, Plant-Based DFW, with my husband kind of leading it. And people t- typically reach out and they always ask, is there a primary physician who practices plant-based nutrition. And I can't believe that we still do not have enough physicians on board here in Dallas. With as with the population that we have, you would think we would have at least a certain percentage of people already on board, but definitely I do not know a single cardiologist here in Dallas that practices or that encourages um, plant-based nutrition. So I was wondering if you can sort of explain to our listeners, what is the difference between say a cardiologist, a heart surgeon, um, and not at all related to vascular surgery, but many people still think that my husband is a heart, um, a cardiologist. And I find that interesting. Um, when I, when I try to explain it, what a vascular surgeon does, I try to think of, say, a plumber who kind of goes in and cleans the pipes. Um, and he always emphasizes that he'll do the carotid arteries. He'll, uh, you know, clean out the leg uh, blockages. But when it comes to the brain, he does not do that. And when it comes to the heart, he also does not specialize in that. So what exactly does a cardiologist do? Yeah. So in its most basic sense, a cardiologist is a heart doctor. Um, and so, and as you mentioned, that can mean lots of different things. So we can get into the different types of heart disease that we tend to see, um, but a cardiologist is someone who has done, um, uh, after medical school, they've trained for three years in internal medicine, sort of just understanding kind of, um, whole body, um, medicine, and then, um, specializes in specifically the heart. So then, um, they'll go on to do three years of a cardiology fellowship specifically. Um, and so, um, a cardiologist tends to, and then from there you can sub sub specialize as well. Um, so I chose to kind of really sub specialize in preventive cardiology. Um, but there's doctors that specialize in, um, 
the plumbing of the heart, as you mentioned. So those are interventional cardiologists. They put stents in and things like that. Um, and then there's um, electrophysiologists who are types of heart doctors that um, help with arrhythmias um, and can do uh, procedures if someone needs a pacemaker, for instance, or if someone um, needs a what's called an ablation, which is a specific uh, procedure that can help um, to treat rhythm issues like atrial fibrillation is probably something that your readers have heard about. Um, there are specialists in um, cardiology who deal with um, con um, congenital heart disease. So um, uh, heart disease that people are born with. Um, and uh, then there is um, uh, congestive heart failure, which is the other um, really common thing that we see. Um, and that's when the heart pump function is not is not working as well as it should. Um, and so those doctors are really um, key in kind of helping to optimize their um, medications and treatments um, to help the heart improve um, if possible, and at the very least their symptoms. Um, so those are the different types of heart doctors. Um, and in general, what cardiologists do is they, they treat any number of those different heart conditions, um, typically using medications and hopefully with also lifestyle changes and things like that. Um, some of them do do procedures, as I mentioned. Um, so there are some procedures, but that differs from, um, say, a surgeon um, who is um, opening up uh, the chest and performing an actual surgery. So cardiologists who are interventional cardiologists can fix valves and, and put stents in and things like that, but it's all performed um, percutaneously, um, which means through kind of an artery in the leg or, or the arm or something like that. What was it like when you were in the regular system? Um, because I'm assuming that you had very limited time with your patients. Yeah. So, um, so most cardiologists, um, so a, a general cardiologist, which is someone who, um, kind of is, um, isn't subspecialized into one of those areas that I mentioned, but does sort of general cardiology. Um, oftentimes, um, they have a clinic, um, whether it's at a hospital or a private practice, um, where they, they have a fairly large panel of patients that they're seeing. Um, most cardiologists will start their mornings, um, rounding in the hospital. If they have any patients that are admitted to the hospital, they see them there and help coordinate treatment plans and then go to the office and have a full day of patients. Um, most cardiologists also are reading different heart tests. So there's heart testing that we can do um, like echocardiograms. Those are sonograms of the heart and there we can look at the pump function of the heart. So um, I'm also board certified and able to, to read and interpret those tests. Um, we also supervise and interpret stress tests, which are, um, there's a couple different forms, but in its most basic senses, um, is where you're looking at the, the, you're looking for blockages essentially in the, the heart, um, uh, that might be causing chest pain or shortness of breath. And so, um, so we supervise those tests often on a treadmill and then interpret the, the EKGs and the, the imaging, um, for that as well. So most cardiologists will, will supervise and interpret and read those tests throughout the day in between patients. Um, many are seeing many, many patients a day, um, chart um, and then uh, call in the hospital as well. So many, most cardiologists will take um, significant amounts of call in which they're responsible for going into the hospital overnight for, for emergencies. So I was wondering if you can sort of give our listeners a little bit of a general view of the different types of heart disease. And then if you could tell us at what point do we know that we need to see a cardiologist? At what point do we realize that there's something wrong with our heart? 
That's a great question. So um, in in general, um, when we're talking about sort of heart disease, typically what we're discussing is um, the, the blockages in the arteries of the heart. So that's typically what people think about when they think about heart disease. Um, and as you mentioned, um, heart disease is um, the number one killer of both men and women here in the States, but also internet globally. Um, and so, um, so it's, and it's also a, a very big cause of, um, of morbidity or disability. Um, so it's a huge topic um, and um, and something that's just really important to talk about. And I love that that you're here doing a whole series on, on Heart Health Month. Um, so so the, the blockages of the arteries is what um, is something that um, is a very large bulk of, of heart disease. Um, but as we mentioned, there's all different kinds of heart disease, some of which is has similar risk factors, others um, are which are completely unrelated. Um, so congestive heart failure is a, another big one, um, which is where the, the pump function of the heart muscle isn't working as well. And that can be due to heart attacks over time, can also be um, due to um, many other causes, um, alcohol use, all kinds of different things can, can cause that. Um, and so that's another another very large um, area of, of heart disease. Um, and then rhythm issues, like we mentioned, like atrial fibrillation, um, those, those can, that's part of kind of heart disease. Um, uh, congenital heart disease, which we mentioned. So all these different um, groups of, of heart disease um, kind of go under that big umbrella. Um, and then um, to kind of get to your second question, um, you know, it's it's almost like it's never too early to see a heart doctor. Um, you know, most people, and it depends on kind of what's going on and your risk factors and and everything else. Um, so most people traditionally start to will come see a heart doctor if they're having symptoms. So if, for instance, they're having some chest pain they're concerned about or palpitations like heart racing, that's oftentimes when people come in to see me. Um, so that's usually when people start to get plugged in. Um, in my current practice, more and more, um, I typically am seeing sort of two different groups of patients. Um, and so, and it gets into the different types of prevention there is. So there's something called primary prevention, um, which are patients, um, which is when you're trying to prevent heart disease from establishing. Um, so I get a lot of patients who have strong family histories of heart disease or who have um, very high cholesterol or any number of risk factors for heart disease. Um, and so they want to come in and see me and really um, figure out how to best optimize that and, and really make sure they're minimizing all of these risk factors um, so that they can hopefully prevent heart disease in the first place. And then I have a whole another group of patients who have heart disease. Um, they've either had a heart attack or a stent or a positive stress test, and they want to really work on making sure that, that they don't have any further events. And that's called secondary prevention. Um, and so we see those patients as well. Um, so there's an, all kinds of reasons to see, you know, a heart doctor. The best place to start typically, if you're concerned, would be to talk to your primary care doctor um, and say, you know, hey, my heart health, um, you know, because of my dad or this, that or the other, I'm concerned about it, you know, would you recommend that I see a, a heart doctor at this point? Um, many primary care doctors, you know, can manage some of that, that, that stuff. Um, and, and then others, you know, recommend that you really get um, a consultation with, with someone. Okay, that's good to know. When you talk about the primary prevention, you know, I'm thinking of people who have asked us, believe it or not, is there any any way that I can find out whether I already have blockages? Um, so, Part of that question is you having mentioned, and we hear it from Dr. Greger, but you also have said that 
heart disease or at least atherosclerosis starts at a very young age from childhood. So most of us do have probably some sort of blockage. So if we're interested in knowing whether um, we are at risk, whether we have blockages in our arteries, is there something that can be done to test for that? Yeah. So um, for patients who aren't having any symptoms at all, meaning they're asymptomatic, um, but are interested in sort of getting an understanding of what their heart health kind of looks like right now, um, there's some non-invasive ways that we can assess that. Um, And so um, typically we will look at um, something called a coronary artery calcium score. um, And some, some corollary of that is another type of CAT scan that's um, that uses dye, but most commonly it's the, the coronary artery calcium score CAC for short. So you might hear it referred to as that. Um, Basically what that is, is it's a very um, specialized CAT scan that's looking just at the arteries in your heart. Um, And specifically it's quantifying the amount of calcium that is in the arteries of your heart. It's important to note that when a plaque has been calcified, that actually means it's an old plaque not a new plaque. So the very, so how plaques sort of develop is you get cholesterol, it's in your bloodstream, it kind of gets through the the walls of the artery, deposits, builds up over time, um, and then it starts to evolve and eventually gets calcified over time. So when you're doing these coronary artery calcium scores, you're actually kind of identifying older plaque. Um, And then you can use that so it quantifies it. It will give you a number of, um, and then it will also give you kind of an idea of your percentile. So where you fall in based on other individuals that you're with your same age and and gender. Um, And that can be really helpful to sort of get a sense of, um, you know, what's going on right now. Um, Keeping in mind that caveat that I mentioned is that it doesn't identify that early soft plaque. Um, So it can be useful, for instance, in, say, a younger person who has um, elevated cholesterol. Um, We've really worked on a lot of dietary changes. We can't seem to get that cholesterol quite down. And we get the coronary artery calcium score, and it's very elevated. So that can kind of help us make that decision. Okay, this this cholesterol is very important at this point. We're already seeing deposition. Um, We need to do something about it and and, and really talk more seriously about medications, for instance. Um, So it can be very helpful with treatment decisions and helping people sort of get a sense of where they're at. And then the flip side of that is, you know, someone who you're sort of on the borderline, but they're kind of getting their numbers down and you get the coronary calcium score and it's zero. So that's a little bit reassuring. Okay. So, so far things look pretty good. We still want to get these numbers down, but we've got some time to work on this together. Yes. Thank you. Also more specifically speaking about women, I had mentioned previously that I found it interesting that conditions that women may develop during a pregnancy, for example, could be indicators that there's something going on and that um, one should take into consideration these risk factors. So, for example, um, preeclampsia. And also, I've heard that symptoms can be a little different for women, while men, for example, may experience a sharp pain in the heart, in the chest area. What are some of the common symptoms that women may experience that can be subtle when there's something going on with the heart? Yeah. So um, I think it's really important that we discuss um, women and heart disease specifically, um, because as you mentioned, it can affect us very differently and there are different risk factors. Um, So the most common risk factors for women um, for heart disease are the same as they are for men. Um, So things like you know, diabetes, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, being above our ideal body weight, um, 
sedentary lifestyle, family history, um, smoking, um, and obviously nutrition. So, so the big risk factors are, are common, but there are certainly some, some risk factors that are unique to women. Um, and so the hormonal and, and pregnancy related ones are probably some of the most important ones. Um, and so there is a relationship between um, some pregnancy complications, um, specifically definitely preeclampsia, but also gestational diabetes, gestational hypertension, um, and then actually having a small for gestational age weight baby. Um, so these um, pregnancy complications, quote unquote, are, um, it's really important to recognize that they are associated with an increased risk of heart disease later in life. Um, and so whether it's, and it's unfortunately still very poorly understood. Um, some of it may be that it is sort of unmasking, um, a woman's risk for heart disease um, because of XYZ risk factors. But there also is increasing evidence that in and of itself, preeclampsia can cause vascular changes that then makes it more likely that a, a woman will develop heart disease later in life. Regardless, what we do know is it does matter. And it's important for I think, women to know because one, it's under-recognized in general, as you said, um, in the general population, but even within kind of the medical community as well. Um, and so your doctor should be, you know, you should definitely, if you've had a pregnancy complication like that, and you're now um, sort of in your middle aged and kind of starting to think more seriously about heart disease prevention and things like that, make sure your doctor knows that because that is something that should be taken into account when we're sort of assessing cardiovascular risk. And, um, and so it's kind of a risk enhancing feature, meaning that you want to make sure that every, you know, that obviously you can't change the preeclampsia you had 20 years ago, but it does mean that you want to sort of do everything you can from a lifestyle perspective to try to lower your risk um, in general. And then also, you know, make sure that cholesterol is really well controlled. Make sure you're not smoking. Make sure the diabetes is really well controlled, those sort of things. So it's stuff that all kind of goes into our um, comprehensive understanding of your overall cardiovascular risk. Um, And then just kind of touching on that second question you had about um, women and how their symptoms. Um, So the most common presenting symptom of a heart attack for a woman is actually chest pain. Um, but it may, may be experienced differently than a, a man. Um, so it can be that classic elephant sitting on my chest, you know, pressure like sensation, um, or it can be a little bit more subtle. Um, it can feel more like, um, an upset stomach. Um, sometimes it can be felt sort of more in the neck or the, the, um, upper abdomen, um, sometimes in the shoulder region. Um, also, we're more, we are more likely to have sort of atypical symptoms, um, quote unquote, things like just sort of really f- bad fatigue, really nauseous, um, just kind of general feeling of very unwell or anxious. Um, so there are other symptoms that we can have in conjunction with this chest pain or in isolation. Um, and um, women are, are, are more likely to present late, meaning we're we don't really believe we're having a heart attack. And so we come into the emergency room much later than we should. Um, and we tend to have worse outcomes, um, both because we're presenting later, as well as because um, historically we've been prescribed um, less medication and get have received less timely treatment. So um, for all these reasons, you know, it's just important for us not to be 
scared, but just to be aware and to be our own advocates. Um, and to really, you know, we're oftentimes so worried about everybody else's health, the kids, you know, our spouses, everybody, um, that we kind of forget to take care of ourselves and make sure we're going to our doctor's appointments and we're on top of these things and things and that, um, and things like that. So, um, keep looking after yourself. Your health is just as important as everybody else's in the family. Um, and then also, you know, if you feel like something might be wrong, get it checked out, be an advocate. Um, don't just blow it off. Wonderful. Self-care, self-care. <laughs> so um, now I did mention before we move on to looking at numbers and then, uh, you know, treatment and lifestyle, I was wondering if you can speak a little bit about what I've been hearing about lately in the news about broken heart syndrome and how those numbers have gone up since we've been experiencing this pandemic. What have you seen on your end? And can you explain to our listeners a little bit about what that means? Yeah, so broken heart syndrome, um, for um, those of you who haven't heard it of what it is, it essentially is a temporary um, congestive heart failure. So essentially, what happens is, is that typically in response to um, a really surprising, devastating event, or stressful event um, that someone will 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 have some chest pain. Um, it presents very similarly as a heart attack. So oftentimes, um, the EKG um, and the sonogram will look like you're having a heart attack. Um, and then we go in to look at the arteries of the heart, and there's no heart attack. There's no plaque that's broken, that's um, ruptured. Everything looks fine. The arteries look fine. Um, but for but for whatever reason, the the pump function of the muscle is is depressed, meaning it's the, your heart is not pumping as well as it should, and it has a very specific kind of pattern. Um, luckily, it is temporary. Um, over you know weeks to months, it typically normalizes, um, and um, uh, sometimes with the help of medications, um, other times not, um, and and does not seem to sort of predispose you to having um, heart disease later down the line. Um, but it can be quite serious. Um, it can definitely require hospitalizations um, and and medications to help support um, the cardiovascular system um, temporarily. So people can be quite sick. Um, uh, and so it's, you know, just important to, to recognize. Um, and again, we, we typically used to see it in a lot in relation to, um, just a really shocking, stressful, surprising event. Um, but it can happen, um, for, for any number of reasons. And so, um, you know, over the course of, of COVID and, um, all of these different, um, you know, stresses at an all time high, um, and, and things like that. And so it's not totally altogether surprising, um, that we're seeing this. Um, and then that just needs to be sort of, um, that's a separate entity than the other COVID related heart disease that we've been hearing about, which is the myocarditis, which is the actual, inflammation in response to a viral infection, which can cause the heart to not pump as well. And that can be very, very, very serious. Um, and we, you know, we've always seen that with different viruses, but we're certainly seeing it with it with COVID as well. So now if we can look at numbers, because I've heard you talk about um, cholesterol, um, more specifically how we're, we can't necessarily focus too much on the total uh, cholesterol number. I just recently had my labs drawn through LabCorp. So my husband said, you know, you can now request these tests 
and and go to your nearest lab core without seeing a physician. I guess the, the physician approves it, I guess, online, but you don't have to have a doctor's visit. So I said, let's do it all. You know, the cholesterol, the food, lipid panel. I also wanted to check for C-reactive protein, so indicators of inflammation and all of that, vitamin D, which was low. But then why should, I'm not surprised because I'm not outside as much. <laughs> so I was wondering if you can talk about that number. So if someone like myself who may not have, you know, any symptoms right now, of heart disease, the average person that may not have any problems, what is important for us to look at? So it's important to look at the overall picture. Um, so uh, cholesterol is one of the most important risk factors for heart disease. It's not, by, but it's definitely not the only. Um, and it is necessary um, to develop heart disease. So cholesterol is what creates that plaque. Um, so elevated levels of cholesterol within the bloodstream or more accurately, the lipoproteins that carry the cholesterol in the bloodstream um, is, is causative of heart disease. And so that's a big one that we, we focus on. Um, we also worry about, um, as you mentioned, different things that can cause the endothelium, which is the lining of the blood vessel to be um, uh, weaker and so things are inflamed. And so chronic inflammation is a big one. Um, you know, glucose control, um, smoking, which causes inflammation, you know, all these things can also increase our risk, um, hypertension of, of heart disease. Um, but definitely cholesterol is a big one and one that I tend to focus on a lot in my practice. Um, with regards to kind of what numbers to look for, when you're getting that standard lipid panel um, from your physician, um, what it will show is your total cholesterol, which is all of the cholesterol contained with all of the lipoproteins within your bloodstream. Um, and then it will give you the LDL cholesterol, the HDL cholesterol, and the triglycerides. Um, so the LDL cholesterol and the HDL cholesterol, um, known to many people as the bad cholesterol and the good cholesterol, um, those are, again, that's the amount of cholesterol that's contained within those lipoproteins. So um, most uh, physicians um, focus um pretty exclusively on at this point, at least as your first priority, the LDL cholesterol. We don't focus as much on the total cholesterol simply because that is also taking into account your HDL cholesterol. Now, HDL cholesterol is very complicated, but in its most simplistic sense, um, it is, it is not, um, it's not quite as protective as we once thought, um, it, uh, at least as it's reflected in that HDL number. Um, but, I, but it's certainly the LDL cholesterol um, that is one of the more atherogenic, meaning causing plaque buildup. Um, and so that's why we tend to focus on that. Um, the HDL cholesterol epidemiologically um, is associated when it's elevated, is actually associated with lower risk of heart disease. We're finding out more and more how complicated it is and that it matters more about its, its ability to perform its function rather than that HDL cholesterol number. Um, but for that reason, the total cholesterol um, isn't as informative because you can have kind of an elevated HDL cholesterol, and that's maybe not the worst thing in the world. If it gets too high, it might, it turns out that's probably not so good. Um, but, but you know, the more elevated numbers that we sometimes see is, is, is probably okay. So for all those reasons, we really focus on the LDL cholesterol. And for that, um, we like to see that, um, you know, definitely ideally below hundred milligrams per deciliter. Um, and that's kind of for, average risk individual in someone who has multiple um, 
risk factors for heart disease or established heart disease or has diabetes, we really like to see that even lower. Um, so definitely for my patients with heart disease, it should be below 70 milligrams per deciliter. I like to push it down even, even lower if possible. Um, so those are sort of the numbers that we look at. Um, and, um, you know, again, with the HDL cholesterol, we can talk about different things that can, can potentially raise it. But honestly, we've yet to show that by raising your HDL cholesterol in a trial that we can, we can prevent heart disease. Um, so as of now, it's, it's not, not something that we're as, as focused on. Um, and then the triglycerides are sort of your secondary target. Um, we can get into those if, if we have time, but, um, but really that LDL cholesterol is, is what can, is, um, the most focus simply because we've shown study after study after study that either individuals who naturally have low LDL cholesterol or who push it down with lifestyle and or medications um, have lower risk of heart disease. Just a quick question about that. Well, actually, too, about that. Can stress contribute to cholesterol, high cholesterol um, and diet? So, you know, this is another interesting thing. So we've had people come to us and say, well, I've gone fully plant-based and my numbers are not changing. My cholesterol is still pretty high. We often say that if you're eating a heavily processed vegan diet, then you just have the standard American diet uh, veganized pretty much because processed foods still contain all the uh, high levels of oil, sugars, and salts that we should not be consuming. What do you think about that? So stress does not typically robustly increase LDL cholesterol. However, we do know that chronic stress, as well as acute stress, um, can adversely affect our risk for heart disease. So it is very important. Um, and we've got um, pretty good data at this point that um, stress reduction techniques like meditation and things like that can moderately lower um, blood pressure um, and other risk factors for heart disease. Um, and so, so certainly stress is something that, um, that I focus on a lot in my, in my practice with my patients, um, not so much to lower their cholesterol, but to lower their overall risk of, of heart disease. Um, and then, um, in terms of diet, um, yes. So there's, um, there's lots of different reasons that our cholesterol can be elevated. Um, and so, um, so diet is, is probably one of the most impactful, um, ways that we can lower our cholesterol. But as you correctly pointed out, um, we really need to make sure that we're focusing on, um, a whole food plant-based diet, as opposed to a vegan diet, if we're interested in lowering our, our cholesterol and that, and that's different in that, um, again, you're focusing on kind of whole foods that are plants as much as possible, as opposed to processed and packaged foods. And why that we see that distinction um, is um, when it comes to cholesterol, for instance, is because in order to lower our cholesterol, um, sort of the two things that we really need to focus on is one, reducing our um, intake of saturated fats. So saturated fats are what raises our blood level of cholesterol. Um, and those are predominantly found in animal foods. Um, so we see them in, in red meat and other meats, um, uh, definitely processed um, meats, and then dairy, butter, cheeses, yogurts, things like that. Um, and then um, we do find it in coconut oil um, and in palm oil. And so that's how, as a, a vegan, if you're eating a lot of processed foods, those typically have one or both of those oils in them. That's how we can really raise our cholesterol. 
Um, and then the, what, um, we want to focus on eating more of is fiber, um, specifically soluble fiber. And that's what helps us to really lower our cholesterol. Um, and those are found mostly in unprocessed whole plant foods. Um, so, um, so getting lots and lots and lots of fiber is a way that we can really help lower our cholesterol. So, so certainly, um, one of the first things I, I talk to my patients about if they're, um, they're, you know, not eating very many animal products, but they don't understand why their cholesterol is going down is okay. Tell me what specifically you are eating. And we try to, um, find ways that we can make it be a little bit less processed, um, and get more fiber in their diet. Um, and then secondly, um, you know, definitely genetics are important. Um, and, and there are definitely um, many different um, genetic causes of elevated cholesterol that um, respond differently to changes in diet. Um, and some patients, despite eating a very whole food, plant-based, no oil, no sugar, no no. Um, salt, um, still don't see their cholesterols kind of getting down where they want them to, to be. Um, and, um, and unfortunately, um, genetics can't, you, you can't always quote unquote beat your genetics. Now that's not to say that the, um, eating a healthy lifestyle isn't still very important. Um, because as we mentioned, cholesterol isn't everything, right? It is important that you're eating that way to lower your blood pressure, to lower your, um, your levels of inflammation, you know, all that stuff is still very, very important. It just might mean that in order to get our cholesterol to a safe level, you, you might need, um, to reach for something else. And sometimes that's, that's a medication and that's okay. That's not a failure, right? That is the beauty of being able to have all these different tools at our disposal to optimize our heart health. I've also heard you say that, um, Supplementing with something like a plant sterile can be just as effective as a statin. So I wonder if you want to talk about that. And I've also heard you mention the portfolio diet, which was new to me, but it's basically all the right foods to help reduce cholesterol. Is that right? Yeah. So that's actually what I was referring to with the plant sterile sterols. That's part of the portfolio diet. So we do have um, some studies to show that consuming a portfolio, portfolio diet, which is essentially um, a whole food plant-based diet, but really focuses on getting certain amounts of um, plant protein, specifically soy was used in the studies, um, soluble fiber, um, getting around 20 grams of soluble fiber a day, um, and then consuming a handful of nuts a day. And then then the plant stanol sterols, which are basically for um, for your listeners, what those are is they're they're um, basically the plant form of cholesterol, um, and they're found in all plants in pretty small quantities. Um, it's actually difficult to get larger quantities um, just because they're such so small quantities um, in in the foods. Um, so in the studies, they actually did that was the one supplements that they they used really um, was to to get about two grams of, of plant stanols and sterols in, um, and so with following that diet in the context of a low saturated fat intake. They compared that to um, that diet, um, a just a low saturated fat, but not specifically trying to, you know, increase your plant intake. And then a statin group plus low saturated fat. And they found that the portfolio diet um, was equivalent to this um, low dose Statin. So, um, so certainly in the context of a whole food plant-based diet, um, that's one way that someone who's already eating a specific um, way um, that, you know, kind of really focusing on those specific foods can kind of help you tweak um, your diet a little bit to potentially lower your cholesterol even further. 
Okay, this is great. There's so much more that I could ask about. Well, I guess as we're beginning to wrap up, maybe if you'd like to give us additional tips related to lifestyle modifications, things that we can do to reduce our risk, or if we've already had an event um, to continue to kind of uh, take care of our hearts. Yeah. So, um, so definitely looking at your diet, um, as we sort of already touched on, that's one of my, um, top areas where I really work with my patients on trying to fine tune, um, their diet and, and troubleshoot together and make sure we're kind of, you know, on average, um, eating as, as healthfully as we can to promote heart health. Um, and then, uh, the other levers, which we, I barely touched on or didn't touch on at all that are really important, um, is, is exercise. Um, so that's another really big area with a lot of robust research to show that, um, definitely getting, um, at least 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week is what we need to achieve optimal heart health. Um, we continue to see benefits all the way up to 300 minutes of moderate intensity exercise per week. So if you have the time, um, that's great. Um, and then beyond that, we don't see much, much additional benefit and maybe a signal of harm. Um, we also have research to show if you have no time to exercise, but you just do a little bit of something that is actually better than nothing. And that, and that we have good data to show that as well. Um, so exercise is important. If you can get in resistance training as well, meaning some sort of strength training, Pilates, yoga, something that's really focusing on, on, um, working your muscles, that's really good as well. Um, and so we just, we recommend two um, sessions of that per week as well, if you can. Um, so that's exercise in a very quick nutshell. Um, and then the other lovers that we talked about sort of stress reduction, um, that is really, really huge. Um, and a really big area, um, for many of my patients, um, who, um, their blood pressure is just a little higher than it needs to be, or it's really labile, really working on breathing techniques and meditation and different ways to find mindfulness. Um, and then sleep is another big one. So inadequate, um, uh, sort of both qual quantity as well as quality of sleep. Um, uh, I diagnose obstructive sleep apnea all the time. That is a big risk factor for heart disease. Um, so that's a big one to, to kind of be mindful of, um, and pay attention to as well. Um, and then the community and the connections and things like that. Um, and, and just finding people, um, that, um, that bring you joy. Um, that's another kind of, um, lever. And so all those things kind of go into heart health, but also just health in general. <laughs> and you lightly touched on um, blood pressure, which we didn't focus a lot on. But that's also um, with certain foods, you can also lower your um, your blood pressure. I, I know one particular person who refuses to take her medication because she doesn't like how she feels. Um, and unfortunately, then that's when we're talking about needing physicians or cardiologists who, who can believe in the power of foods to encourage the individual to take your medication, but we can slowly take you off as long as you're making these changes with lifestyle, but also nutrition, right? Yeah. And I think for a lot of patients, it's, um, it's about kind of find being feeling like you're being heard and that it's a team, right? And I think that that sort of, I mean, again, it goes back to kind of practicing that old school medicine where it's, we're, we're a team, we're going to work on this together. Um, and so 
I think that um, uh, certainly lots of people can manage their blood pressure with, um, you know, a plant-based DASH style diet, low in sodium, high in potassium foods. Um, those are great ways to lower blood pressure. And that works for many people. It doesn't work for everyone though. And so, you know, being able to have that conversation and let's work on these changes. Um, but if it's, you know, really dangerously high, let's try a little low dose of maybe this one. Okay. That didn't work. Let's try a different one, you know? And so, so many people who um, either medications they feel like they don't work for them or, um, or they don't want to take them. It's really just simply because they haven't felt heard and felt like they're part of the team and making that kind of decision together. Um, and I think once you just make it very clear that like, you know, you're in charge, it's your body. I'm just here to help guide you. Um, you know, and if you don't like this, we'll switch it to something else or whatever. Um, that, that is just so powerful and it goes such a long way to really feeling like people are, are in charge of their health um, and they, they often will make different decisions based on it sort of discussed in that way. Right. And you've said that patients do better when they're, like you said, involved in their own um, treatment plan, but also just when you put together an individualized plan for them, they do a lot better, probably because like you said, they, they feel heard. This has been um, wonderful. There's so much more that I could ask. But um, Dr. Harkin, if people are interested in learning more about you, your work, what is the best way that they can contact you? Yeah. So, um, so plant, all of us are at plantedforward.com. So you can just go to our website, learn more about, um, us there, um, book directly with any of us on that website. Um, so that's probably one of the easiest ways to become, um, my patient. Um, you can, you know, book your appointments through, through that. Um, and then, um, just for general, um, knowledge and things like that, I'm most active on Instagram. So Nicole Harkin, MD, you can follow me there. Um, I, you know, post different tips and what I'm eating and all kinds of stuff. Um, and I love being and seeing, seeing faces around there. So. Yay. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you again. Um, I know that you've been busy this month, um, really encouraging people to put all these uh, lifestyle changes in place so that they can prevent or reduce the risk for heart disease. So I thank you for all the work that you're doing and for making time today to um, speak to our listeners. It was my pleasure. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. You've been listening to the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions Podcast with your host, Maya Acosta. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do us a favor and share with one friend who can benefit from this episode. Feel free to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts. That helps us to spread our message. Thanks for listening.